Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Have you ever had a plan that didn't go right? That went awry? That's what you have with tuna, isn't it? Rye, tuna on rye. Where's that word come from? Bobby Burns. Well, actually, he didn't say that. He said, the best laid plans of mice and men, he said in Scottish brogue, aft gang aglay, we say, oft go what? Awry. So you've ever had plans that go awry? Well, Brady was sharing a story with me about that this week. A plan that didn't really accomplish what it was set out to to do. The year was 1932. It was in the summer. After World War I in 1918, in Australia, the troops that were coming back, many of them didn't have a place to settle, and they were given land grants in West Australia in the Campion District of Western Australia. And they were encouraged to farm, because that's about the only thing that you did there, either farm or do sheep farming, shepherding. And things were going okay until the Great Depression. And then they were encouraged because of a shortage of wheat to grow wheat, which they began to do, which was fine for a while until, guess what? They overproduced, and the price of wheat did what? It went down. And the government didn't provide subsidies, which the government's always supposed to do. And so the farmers were destitute, and they were on the uh, edge of rebellion and even thinking about the uh, Campion District seceding from Australia. And then, if things couldn't get worse, they did. Emus, six-foot, awkward-looking, ostrich-like bird, very awkward, gawky. There were herds of them that would migrate across Australia toward the coast every year, but this year they diverted and came through the wheat fields because they found water and, and fodder and feed there, and they started destroying the crops. So it added insult to injury. The farmers asked for help from the government. So in their brilliance, short-term plan, a tactical plan, the Minister of Defense, George, Sir George Pierce, decided to send in the army. He not only sent in the army to call the herd, he sent in the 7th Heavy Battery Artillery. (laughs) Well, they didn't use the big guns. They used machine guns, and they tried to hunt them down. And in the fall in November, over about a two-week period, after expending thousands of rounds, they were able to kill about 50 or 100. Top estimates were maybe 200. Wasn't very successful. You can just picture. It's kind of humorous in a way if it weren't so sad. So they made another go at it. And uh, the machine guns still didn't make much of a dent. They expended about 10,000 rounds. They killed about 1,000 emu. The bad news is that was too expensive. The worst news was there were still how many emus left. What's the plural of emu? Emu or emus? Anyway, there were still 19,000 of them left. The commander of the uh, company there that went in, the battalion, was Major G.P.W. Meredith, and he put it this way. If we had a military division, 
With a bullet-carrying capacity, that is, bullet-resisting capacity of these birds, it could face any army in the world. <laughs> they can face machine... Some of them were hit and wounded, and they didn't drop. They can face machine guns with invulnerability like tanks. They're like Zulus, who you can hit them with dumb, dumb bullets, and they still don't fall down. So... It was not a success. It wasn't a raving success. Finally, the government declared that they had lost the war and the emus had won. And they, they went to an operational plan instead of a tactical plan, a longer-term plan, and that was, we'll give a bounty for people who bring the skins in. And guess what? They began to make a dent in the herd. Um, what's interesting about this to me is there was a short film uh, that was made a couple of years ago about this, but there's going to be a feature-length film coming out this year. I could not have picked a better person to star in this movie if you know anything about Monty Python. <laughs> Who is the English comedian that's a little over six foot tall that is the awkward minister of silly walks? Anybody know? John Cleese. He is going to star in this movie. It's going to be hilarious. You see, that was a short-term tactical plan. You know, when I was in the Army, we thought in three levels, tactical, operational, and strategic. Tactical was down at battalion level, and that's what this was. Operational is up at the division level, two-star general, and strategic is four-star and above, national defense. There's another way of looking at it. Tactical is short-term. And in, in, that, in that respect, when I was ancient history, this was 20 years ago, tactical used to be a year out. Operational was two years out. Strategic was five to ten years out. Folks today in business, strategic is a year. That's long-term planning. This was a short-term plan. You know, China has a long-term plan. It's called Belt and Way. Have you read about it? Have you heard about it? Their plan is to have an infrastructure a system of trade and interconnectivity from western North Africa all the way across the Middle East to Southeast Asia that they control. And they've been working at this for over a generation. And guess when the plan is estimated to, to finish? 2050 or so. Do you get it? People that were planning 20, 30 years ago for this plan never would see the end of it. That is a strategic vision. Well, you know, God's got a strategic vision. We, we speak about meta-narrative. I'm not really sure why we call it meta-narrative because meta means with. Right, Joe? Yeah. A with narrative, it really is used metadata, the popular idea, big, you know, uh, something bigger than we are that comes with whatever it is that it comes with, you know. <laughs> I think a better term would be mega narrative. But God's narrative is not just a big story. God's narrative is a super story. And I don't mean super is just bigger than big. I mean it is super above and beyond and before and after all of creation, just as he is supernatural. You know, successful plans require some essential ingredients. A successful plan should have a long-term strategy. Long-term, not tactical or operational, not short in its vision, and it ought to be overarching, with definitive and achievable goals. Successful plans that make a difference ought to have detailed planning that account for every possible variable. That's impossible to do for us, but it's not for God. Successful plans that make a big difference 
require patience and resilience when you experience failure in the middle of them. Because, folks, there will be failure in the middle of any plan. And you need to be willing to be resilient and, and work through the problems. Successful big plans require flexibility to adapt when the plans that you have embedded in them fail. And successful plans take a faith and a belief that what you're doing has viability. It has meaning and significance. It's strategic and it's worthwhile doing because it fits into a grand strategy, a super narrative, something that isn't just for this generation. You know, we did a funeral yesterday, a memorial service for Patsy Fox. And the Russell family could be traced back 33 generations, back to before the Norman invasion. And the Vikings, she's related to Vikings that settled in, in Scotland and Ireland back in the 10th century. Folks, that's long term. You stop and think about this. If that's right, about 30 generations to the year 1000, how many generations has it been since the time of Christ? Do your math about 60 generations. Noah was just talking about Abraham. How far back to Abraham? Probably about 2000 BC, 120 generations. The scripture says this, the Lord is merciful and his mercy, his loving kindness is what? Everlasting for all generations. Not 60 generations, not 120 generations, but a thousand generations. If the Lord doesn't come back for 10,000 years, his super narrative, his merciful super narrative, covers all of that time. The Bible says that God has devised just such a strategy. It's based on the eternal, not just strategic, will of God with a purpose not just for humans, but for all creation. And he is about implementing then strategic and operational and tactical plans in that to accomplish the divine super narrative, the super history. Is there such a thing, oh, here we go again, talking about post-modernity. Is there such a thing as a meta-narrative? Is there such a thing as a mega-narrative? Is there such a thing as a super-narrative? Well, post-modernist philosophers in the purest form would say, no, there's not. Now, I know that they say that, you know, there is one, but the meta-narrative is socially constructed. In other words, all of these things that we think are truth have actually been constructed through our social and cultural views about things. Does that make sense? In other words, if you, if you believe in God, it's really a myth that you have designed in order to accommodate your needs for God. Well, in fact, that's what the pagan philosophers or the pagans did. That's what Hesiod did. That's what Homer did when they wrote their uh, stories about the gods. They were constructing myths about gods that would give an explanation for all the natural forces and everything. Those are myths. They are socially constructed. They are fables that Peter and the other apostles warned, and, and Paul warned their followers not to follow. But God's story is not a myth. You know, if you stop and think about this whole idea of post-modernity and Everything that we know is a construction of a social fabric that we have put together with our minds. It, the logical conclusion of that is there's nothing that's true. 
if you deconstruct, you know, one idea of deconstruction is to take away everything that's not valuable, take what's left and rebuild. But these deconstructionists don't leave anything. In other words, chaos. That's the ultimate conclusion of postmodernity. And God is the opposite of chaos. God is the creator of cosmos. God is a creator of order. God is a creator of good. God in his goodness created a, a creation that is beautiful, that was beautiful, and, and it still is, but in its or, original state was perfect and it was good. God has a plan, I believe. You know, the super narratives or the meta narratives are all around us. And, and here's the question, is it the chicken or the egg? You know, which comes first? Is there a truth out there that causes our mind to construct it a certain way and explain it a certain way? Are you with me? Is there such thing as love, truth, beauty? Are those things existent? Well, Plato said they were. They had a substance of their own. <laughs> he wasn't a postmodernist. Are there those such things? And then we have a way of defining and describing them and constructing them. If that's true, then there is a meta narrative out there. Or is it simply something we've invented with our minds? If you look around it, we see themes and patterns in literature and art and music, and they reflect the way we think. And it's not just because we've constructed them that way. I think it's because they exist. Beauty exists. Love exists. All of those things are in relationship and perceptions, but they exist. Stop and think about it. In literature, for example, the Holy Grail. One of the classic themes in literature related to most authors in the Middle Ages were writing about the cup of Jesus Christ that he drank from at the Last Supper. And then supposedly Joseph of Arimathea caught the blood of Christ in the cup. You know, The idea is that this cup, if it ever can be found, can bless and bring eternal youth and maybe abundance. And that leads to the, the, uh, the narrative of the fountain of youth. The narrative of courtly love in medieval literature, the, the knight in shining armor, and the what in distress? The damsel in distress. These are stories that have some truth in them that I don't think are just socially constructed. What about the idea of utopia? Paradise lost and paradise regained. The battle between good and evil. These are real things. You put those two together and you have the latest craze in movies and literature with the Gen X and the millennials, and it's not utopian movies, it's what? Dystopian movies. So you see where I'm going with this. In sports, we have the same thing. You know, the classic underdog movie. What's your favorite sports underdog movie? Mine was Miracle, you know, when the Americans won the... Uh, uh, Hockey game against the Russians. Hoosiers, Glory Road, Rudy, Rocky, one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> yeah. So you see these narratives are out there. The Bible says that there is a great narrative. There's a great story for all ages. And the Bible is what? The Bible is God's record, revelation of himself and his plan in the super narrative. It tells God's timeless story from Genesis through Revelation. That story that was once a mystery has now been revealed, has now been revealed in Christ. The last chapter of Romans puts it this way. 
Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, you see written before Paul and before Christ, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all nations leading to an obedience of faith, the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Amen. You see, there is a recording of this narrative by the prophets. It's been revealed in the New Covenant. Paul's methodology, he was a master storyteller. But he used different methods of telling the stories. You know, when he would go into most towns, he would go first to where to teach. The synagogue, you know. When he, when he went, did he go to the synagogue at Philippi? No, there wasn't one there. Did he go to the synagogue there at Thessalonica? Yes. So wherever there was a synagogue, he went in and he, and he would teach, and he would do what? It says that he would reason from the Old Testament, and then he would show how Christ had fulfilled it. That was one method. Another method, when he was standing on Mars Hill at Athens, he used eloquence, he used philosophy, he used their concepts, and he adapted the gospel to communicate it in terms that they would understand. Eloquence and wisdom. But when he came to Corinth, and you've heard me say this many times, when he came to Corinth, he rejected both of those. He rejected both methods. He used a more radical and down-to-earth approach, a practical approach. This radical approach opposed Jewish legalism on the one hand and Greek philosophy on the other that were at, at odds with each other. And he took a third different approach, a different way. Why did he do that? The beginning of this chapter in chapter 2, 1 Corinthians says that he came wanting to do two things in Corinth. This was his passion. This was his focus. This was his purpose. Number one, to know Christ and him what? Crucified, number one. And secondly, to reveal to them so that they would understand the power of God. And the power of God is the preaching of the cross. And he knew if he used eloquence, fine-sounding words, or words that were fraught with philosophy that they would stand in between the Corinthians and him, and they would not understand the power of God. So he did not speak with eloquence. He did not speak with persuasive words in Corinth. And he did not speak with human wisdom. That's the background. And then he comes to verse number 6. I didn't speak with wisdom of the world, but what did I do? 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom. We do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For you see, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, but just as it is written... Things which the eye has not seen and ear not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Here Paul talks about the supernarrative and the revelation of it. You see, God has a plan, he says here. God has a plan, and it's based on not human wisdom, but his wisdom. God has a plan that's based on his wisdom and not the world's wisdom. He predestined this plan before when? All the ages. In other words, it's an eternal plan. He didn't wait to see what Adam and Eve were going to do, and they go, oh, I've got to do something about that. 
It's not reactive, it's proactive. He has a plan that's mysterious, long hidden for many, many ages. And you see, if humans had known it, if the kings had known it, the political pundits of the day had known it, they would have tried to thwart his plan. They would have thwarted his plan by doing just the opposite, keeping Jesus alive. You see, the ultimate results of this plan, God's super narrative, are beyond human experience. We can't imagine it. Can we only imagine what heaven's going to be like? No. It's beyond our experience. We can't explain it. Paul, I mean, John does a pretty good job in explaining it in his vision, but we, we're, we're pretty sure that's a meta, metaphorical explanation of heaven. It's the best that he could do, and it's what God revealed to him, and that is the best, okay? But it doesn't even probably begin to capture what heaven is really, really like when we see it. You see, human words have a hard way of explaining it. God has revealed this plan to us by the Spirit. And who knows the mind of God but the Holy Spirit that's revealed it. So God's got a secret strategy. Let me talk about it. First of all, it begins with God's wisdom. And we know this. Isaiah 55 says what? Your thoughts are what? Not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways, the Lord declares. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. So that's the first thing. We need to understand that, that his ways are higher than our, ours. We don't really quite understand all about this super narrative. God's weakness is more powerful than men. His foolishness is wiser than men. His ways are unsearchable. So it begins with this unsearchable wisdom of God in Romans 11th chapter. This morning we began with chapter 12, verse 1. Do you remember what we said right at the end of chapter 11? There is a praise doxology that's given. Just before that doxology, what does Paul say? Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, and who has become his counselor? So one thing we need to understand about this plan that we're going to be talking about for the next year, and preaching and examining in Scripture, is it begins with God's wisdom, which is ultimately unsearchable. We only know the things that he has chosen to reveal to us. Secondly, it's an, it's an eternal plan. That's what he says here to the Corinthians. You see, this is embedded in God's plan of creation, his autonomous action, his self-action to create, depending on nothing, nobody, and, and, and no thing. What does he say to Job when he finally speaks to Job? When in the 38th chapter of Job, God has been silent to Job himself. He's talked to Satan. His friends have bugged him. His wife's bugged him, but God hasn't spoken. And when God opens his mouth, he said, where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? And then for three chapters, he rather upbraids Job. You don't even begin to know what creation is about. You weren't there. You see, I have a predestined plan. We saw this in Ephesians when we did Ephesians over the past few months. In Ephesians, the first chapter, the predestined plan is that we are chosen. We are predestined. We are predestined, though, in what? In Christ, who was chosen before the foundation of the world. There is a predestined plan in Ephesians. Our inheritance has been predestined 
It is set in the heavens according to God's eternal plan. It is predestined. Paul says this in his sermon at Pentecost when he said the crucifixion was not an accident. In fact, it wasn't just a part of God's plan. It was at the center of God's plan. The crucifixion was predetermined according to the foreknowledge of God. Wow. So you see, if the rulers of the world had known about it and they hadn't crucified Christ, it would in fact have been thwarting God's will. A predestined plan. It is an eternal plan because there's an eternal covenant. Hebrews, the 13th chapter says, Now the God of peace, right at the end of that book, Now the God of peace who brought up the dead from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant. This is an eternal covenant. Sometimes people call it the the eternal covenant of redemption. The idea is that the Father and the Son covenanted together before the beginning of time that he would shed his blood for the redemption of humanity. This is an eternal plan that is unthwartable. Is that a word? It can't be stopped. Isaiah 46, he says, My purpose will be accomplished. Whatever I determine... My good pleasure will be done. Isaiah 55, the word of God will not return what? Void. And we usually stop right there. But it won't return void what? Until it has accomplished what I intended it to accomplish and what I desire. Psalm 53, the psalmist says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. This is an eternal counsel. From generation to generation to generation, 33 generations, 60 generations, 120 generations, the counsel of the Lord. And he looks at Job at the end of the book, and he says this, and Job says to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So, you see, it is a, uh, it's based on God's wisdom. It's an eternal plan, and it's a mysterious plan. Peter says it's so mysterious that who wants to peek in, but who does not quite understand it? Angels. Isn't that amazing? Now, stop and think about that. Angels do not really fully comprehend the plan of God. Now, I think up here they they understand it, but they've never experienced it. And the plan of redemption is not for them. Angels, then, that have fallen will not be redeemed. And those that haven't fallen don't need it. They do not understand it. Angels peek into these things. Now, you know, you stop and think about that. That means that Satan doesn't fully understand God's plan. You know, sometimes we think, oh, well, you know, Satan was on the inside track and he knew everything. No, he didn't. I think at the resurrection, at the, resurrection, at the open tomb, there was nobody more surprised than the evil one. Wow. <laughs> you see, it's a secret plan. We use secrecy to defeat the enemy. It's one of the plans of, of, of war. It's one of the principles of war that every cadet in every ROTC program and at West Point and at Annapolis and at the Air Force Academy learn in military planning and strategy 101. Secrecy is an essential part of a military plan, along with simplicity, mass, force, objective, and all those other things. Secrecy is paramount in military operations. You know, when they were planning uh, the Norman, uh, Norman, not Norman invasion, the Normandy invasion, two different things, 1066 and 1944. The, the Normandy invasion, you know, Hitler knew that they were going to invade, but he didn't know where. 
The obvious place was the English Channel. So what the Allies did in 1943 is they put together Operation uh, Bodyguard. And in doing so, it was a very intricate plan to deceive Hitler and, and the Nazis. Were they going to attack in Greece or Yugoslavia? Or Denmark or Norway? Or the Netherlands or southern France? Or the Bay of Biscay? And they kept them confused for a while. But it became pretty obvious when they started unloading ship after ship after ship after ship of troops and, and equipment in, in, in England and Scotland that the invasion was probably going to come across the channel. And so in 1944, they put together Operation Fortitude. They, it was designed to confuse the Germans as to whether they would attack the port of Calais or Normandy or maybe Brittany. And so they set up forces in Scotland aimed at, Norman, at, at Norway. And then they took a rather irascible general, three-star general, who had a reputation for loving to go to war. It was part of his bloodstream. We call him blood and guts who? Patton. And they made him the commander of the first United States Army group. And the Germans found out about this. So Patton's in charge of this army group. And they set him up in East Anglia, According to Operation Quicksilver, it was a sham army. It was a fake army. They were poised to invade at Calais. They were so successful in this deception in Operation Quicksilver that Hitler did not reinforce Normandy. And not only did he not do it then, but after D-Day, he still didn't reinforce it like he should because he still thought that Patton was going to be coming across to Calais. It wasn't until August, and then it was too late that Hitler realized his mistake. You see, secrecy is important in any successful military plan. Secrecy was important to God's plan. Satan didn't know what was going to happen. The enemies of God didn't. You know, we're fascinated with mystery and secret keeping. Have you heard of the mousetrap? Agatha Christie's play in England. It's based on a play that she wrote that was broadcast in 1947 the first time called Three Blind Mice. And then it was moved to the West End in London after it premiered in Nottingham. And it is played continuously except for a brief period during COVID since 1952 at the St. Martin's Theater. 28,000 performances. And at the end of every performance, the eight actors come out on the stage and they exhort, they urge everybody that's attending not to do something. And that is what? Not to tell the ending. Because there's a twist in the ending. Hmm. People love mystery. And I think that's one reason that it's had 28,000 performances. You see, God's plan is a mysterious plan. It's mentioned at least 10 times in the New Testament. It's the mystery of God's wisdom. It's the mystery of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, to you is given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to others I speak in parables. So they'll hear but not understand and they'll see but not really uh, uh, really see it. It's called the mystery of God's will in Ephesians, the mystery of the gospel. It goes by different names and titles. The mystery of God in Colossians, the mystery of Christ in Colossians. It's the mystery of Christ in you according to glory, the mystery of faith. What is this mystery? About the best way I know to describe it, it's found in 1 Timothy 3.16. The mystery of godliness describes this. He was revealed in the flesh the incarnation. He was vindicated in the spirit, 
the resurrection. He was seen by angels, his pre-incarnate glory. He was proclaimed among the nations, the messianic fulfillment. He was believed on in the world, the Savior, and he was taken up into glory, the glorification. That pretty much sums up his plan. There's some specific aspects to this plan. For example, in Ephesians, the third chapter, the mystery is spoken about, the mystery of Christ. Joel preached on that. The mystery of Christ there is specifically that the gospel is to be not only for the Jews, but for whom? The Gentiles. Later, and I preached on this in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, the mystery of the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is who? The church. In Romans, the 11th chapter, there's a mystery about Israel that it's going to return someday. 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you a mystery. Right before that passage that we read about, you know, death being defeated through the resurrection of Christ. It says, here's a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be what? Changed. So you see there are, there are small mysteries that, in, not, that's not small, but there, there are sub-mysteries that are embedded in the great meta-narrative. God's plan is mysterious. Hidden for the ages. You see, Peter tells us at the end of the first chapter, he says, uh, first Peter, he says, you see, the prophets didn't really understand the whole story when they prophesied. They were just faithful to prophesy what God said. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, you have all of these faithful that come one after the other, after the other, after the other, but the faithful never saw the end of their faithfulness. They never really saw it consummated. You see, it wasn't accomplished until Galatians 4 said, at just the right time, God sent his son at a time that was fully ripe in the full season that he set. Even Jesus himself told the disciples and others that witnessed his miracles to be quiet about it. There's a mystery about it, not to be revealed. Why? You see, if God unveiled his full glory right now to all of us in an unmysterious way, first of all, we couldn't take it. It'd be overwhelming. But second of all, we wouldn't have a choice, would we? If we witnessed God in his full glory, we would all be flat on our face, even atheists. Folks, that's going to happen someday. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Above, on, and beneath. It's now revealed time and time and time again. In Colossians and 1 Peter and Ephesians, it says, okay, now it has been revealed to you, and you've been sealed by the Spirit. You now know this plan. It has been revealed. It's been revealed through Christ, and then it's been preached by the apostles. Peter did it at Pentecost. Paul did it wherever he went. It's been revealed. And it is the what? It is the great message, as Noah said, of redemption. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That is the story that we are going to be telling over the next year. And it comes through Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. God's plan of redemption, you know what it is. You know what it is. What are we going to be talking about? God created everything and it was good. Man sinned and fell. And this enslaved not only humans but also all of creation to sin and death and corruption, and we're incapable of stopping that and reversing it. God has an eternal covenant, and that eternal covenant between the Father and the Son is the plan of redemption to save humanity and restore creation. God sent His Son at just the right time, born of a woman under the law, His purpose to justify, sanctify, glorify, restore His created order. 
Jesus Christ came and he accomplished it through the incarnation, through the inauguration. His incarnation and then the inauguration of his ministry where he then set into course the kingdom of God, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his glorification. And he now is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, making intercession for us and ruling over all creation. The plan then continues, you see. It doesn't stop there. Someday, he's coming back. And he will judge according to the Apostles' Creed and Scripture, the quick and the dead. And then he will consummate the kingdom and he will make everything new. That is the redemption story in a nutshell. From beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. Let me close with this. There's some explanatory motifs that you may hear from time to time to describe this redemption story. Sometimes people talk about a series of covenants, and there's nothing wrong with that. The Adamic or the Adam covenant, Noah, Noahic covenant, the covenant of Abraham, the covenant with Moses and Israel, David's eternal covenant, and then the cup of the new covenant, which is Christ's blood. Sometimes people will talk in terms of dispensations. If you've got a Schofield study Bible, it's in the margins, okay? God working at different stages in different ways with his people. Sometimes they describe the story in terms of two testaments, and that's accurate. The old covenant, which is the law, and the new covenant, which is the gospel. Sometimes it's three trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the cross, and the tree of life. Sometimes they describe it as three gardens, the Garden of Eden, and the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden of Paradise. Paradise lost, paradise regained. Sometimes they will speak of it as three divine ages, the age of the Father Creator, and then the age of the Incarnated Son, and the age of the Holy Spirit. In each one of these motifs, if we're not careful, some things can be exaggerated the wrong way, and they can become systems that we try to fit everything into. Beware of that. I'm not against systematic theology, but we have to be careful that our systematic theology doesn't drive the narrative, that the narrative drives the theology. There are some repeated themes and patterns that we see in this redemptive story. God's everlasting mercy and his universal sovereignty. God uses weak things to overcome the strong and the wise. There's irony. Time and time again, God uses great reversals to accomplish his will. They're individual redemptions. We see it with Abraham. We see it with Isaac. We see it with David. We see it with Peter. That is a person who doesn't understand who they are in God, and they, God tests them, and they fail the test, and then God gives them a chance of redemption. We see this with Abraham, and Abraham passed the test, and he's restored, and his identity is renewed. Sometimes we see that redemptive cycle in these people. Watch for it. How are we going to do the story? This is the way we're going to do it. We're going to do it through narratives. We're going to look at the great stories of Scripture. We're going to begin next week with the Garden of Eden. That's a good place to start, isn't it? Yeah. We could start with the Spirit hovering over the face of the earth, but we're going to start with, with the Garden of Eden. And Joel's going to preach then. Um, we're going to use narrative stories, tracing the scarlet thread of history. And the scarlet thread of history, Mark would have testified to this, is the scarlet thread of what? Redemption. From beginning to end, God progressively revealing himself, his will and his purpose through the lives and the events and the great stories of Scripture. Unfolding what kind of theology? A biblical theology. 
as we see points being made drawn from Scripture and an historical theology as it develops progressively. Now, there will be some systematic theology that comes out of that, but folks, this is not going to be a class in systematic theology. It's going to be a narrative look at the way God works in wonderfully powerful ways. We're going to... Um, we're not going to try to fit the stories into, in precon, into preconceived theological motifs, okay? That's not the purpose. We're not going to answer all the questions. Has God revealed his will to us? Yes, and his plan. But has he revealed all of his mystery? No. Are there going to be questions left? Yes. Are there going to be paradoxes? Yes. Are there going to be divine enigmas in it? Absolutely. So this is not designed to answer all the questions, but what it's designed to do is to remind us that we need to rediscover the grandeur of God's eternal sovereignty, His mercy, and His grace as He has told the story from Adam and Eve to the Christ to the coming Christ. Even so, may He come. That's what we're going to be doing over the next well, I think it's 50 sermons, so 49 more. We welcome you to come back and hear God's redemptive story, his plan of salvation, not just for humans, but redeeming all creation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817 817- 926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.